Welcome back, beloved. Uh, today we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 8. And without exaggeration, this was the most difficult chapter. Now I'm going to try and do a whole 30,000 foot overview in one video. However, this was by far the most difficult chapter to study. Many great awesome theologians who love our Lord Jesus Christ differ in opinions on this, and they are far better students of the word than me. And so I wanted to start with, before we get into Daniel chapter 8, um, I made this video months and months ago, and I love how the Holy Spirit works. I never thought it would tie in to Daniel chapter 8 at the time. I just made it. I was passionate about making it at the time. Uh, it is 16 minutes. I would beg you and I would plead with you. Before watching this Daniel 8 video, go back and just type this in on my channel. Foolish Ministries, the key to understanding Bible prophecy. And it really goes over foreshadowings and types and near fulfillment and far fulfillment and, and sort of the humility that we have to approach the scriptures with. Now, I would really urge you to do that. It will greatly help you understand the book of Daniel chapter 8 today. However, I know most of you are not going to do that. So before I jump into Daniel 8, I wanted to review some biblical prophecies that I believe are very illuminating about how to study biblical prophecy. And what I'm doing is I am not trying to confuse you today. I'm just trying to open up your mind to the humility of understanding that, yes, the Bible makes things clear. It reveals them, but it also says we also know in part and we prophesy in part. And so let me explain this. Hosea chapter 11 is talking about Christ. Well, Daniel chapter 8 and several chapters towards the end of the book of Daniel, they are revealing the Antichrist. And just like when Christ came, many people didn't understand the prophecies about him until he came. I believe it will be the same with the Antichrist. We'll have a very good understanding, enough that we need of the prophecies of when he, you know, when he arrives and his ministry. But there's also some things that as he's on the earth, it will become abundantly clear at the time. So Hosea chapter 11 is written 700 years before Christ is even born. It's talking about the nation of Israel. It says, when Israel was a youth, the nation of Israel, I loved him. And out of Egypt, out of the nation of Egypt, God called his son. He's talking about Israel. Jesus isn't even born. And yet when Jesus is born in Matthew 2, he, like the nation of Israel, uh, went to Egypt. And after the death of Herod, he came out of Egypt, just like Israel. And the Lord says in scripture, uh, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. And this is really nowhere talked about any, there's no other prophecies anywhere else in scripture with that exact language. And so I think it's very clear that there was a near-term fulfillment that they could all see. Like, yes, Israel came out of Egypt, but then there was something they couldn't see, a far-term fulfillment that the entire nation of Israel was like a pictograph or a typograph of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of Egypt. Like when, when Israel went through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. We're baptized into Christ, right? Like it's, it's incredible, all these realities. But there was no way of knowing that until Christ came and it was written of him. Let me give you another one. About four or 500 years before Christ is born, the prophet Zechariah says, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Talking to the Israelites. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just. He's endowed with salvation. He's a saving king. But he's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We all we all know when this was, was predicted in the New Testament, right? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey 2,000 years ago. But then this is very illuminating for understanding Bible prophecy. Literally, the next verse is talking about the second coming of Jesus in judgment. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations and his dominion, the king's dominion, will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Just a few verses down, it says, The Lord will appear over them. His arrows will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 24, there's going to be a great trumpet. And will march in the storm winds of the south. It's talking about a conquering king. It says the Lord of hosts will defend them. Uh, you know, it talks about this great war uh, that Christ fights in. The, the humble king on the donkey, he then comes out <laughs> with lightning, right? And so... Obviously, that did not all happen at the first coming of Christ. And both these prophecies are within just a few sentences of each other, right? And once again, this is not meant to confuse you. We're just trying to study how the Lord prophesies, how the Lord writes down scriptures related to prophecy. Some are abundantly clear even before they happen. For example, he will be pierced for your transgressions, Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ is born, and he's like a lamb led to a slaughter. Obviously, that's Jesus. That's very straightforward. But the two prophecies I just showed you, they're, they're a little more concealed in a sense, not, not occultic or I'm not trying to develop some mysterious interpretation. We just have to approach them humbly. Here's another good one. Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And, and Jonah, within the whale, cried out for salvation. And so it's, it's amazing that literally Jonah actually historically was swallowed by a whale and did go, you know, did literally go into the depths of the sea for three days. And, and that was all a foreshadowing of Christ being in, in the earth when he was dead for three days and three nights. And so all I'm trying to say is I believe some of these prophecies are clear. Other ones will be abundantly clear once they happened. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13.9 says, We know in part and we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. It even says prophecy, knowledge, it will all pass away. One day we will fully know these prophecies. It says, now we see in a mirror dimly, it's a little bit dim, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully. And so please be gracious with me and merciful. You're not going to hear anything new today. You're going to hear the conservative, uh, you know, uh, realities regarding these prophecies. I'm certainly not the first one to preach these. My goal is just to explain the truth to you here, okay? So with that being said, let's jump into Daniel chapter 8. This is very difficult. However, I think it's pretty straightforward to understand. I really don't think it's rocket science. I just think you need to sift through the scripture and through the word and history a little bit. So, Daniel chapter 8 starts with, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me 
previously. So the first thing we need to do is talk a little bit about one. This is now backtracking. Daniel chapter 8 begins to write in Hebrew again. Now Daniel is writing in Hebrew again. I think it's very straightforward. From Daniel chapter 2 to 7, he's addressing the nations. And then in Daniel 8 and on, he's really hyper-focusing in on the Jewish people and explaining how all these things going on with the nations affect the Jewish people. So this backtracks to when Daniel is in Babylon, the head of gold, the lion, the, the first beast, right? He's in Babylon during the reign of Belshazzar, and he gets a vision. And so we want to talk about this timeline. I want to explain this timeline. Everything in this timeline is prophesied in Daniel chapter 8. That's part of the reason this is a bit complex. And there's so much from the secular community, there is so much rage against the book of Daniel. Because if Daniel was written when it was written, uh, roughly scholars estimate between 530 and 600 BC, if it was written then, it is absolute proof the Bible predicted the future. And it's really clear. It doesn't speak in murky ways at all. And Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11, as well as a couple verses in Daniel chapter 9, are striking examples of the truth of God's word. So there is a war against the book of Daniel, really like no other book I've seen in the Bible in that sense from the secular community. So you need to understand, and I'll, I'll bring up this timeline again so we understand greater, the Median Empire. Remember, there was Babylon, the head of gold, it was the lion, then there was the Medo persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, okay? The Median Empire was about 687 to 725 years, let's say 700 years before Christ. Daniel's vision is 551 BC, roughly. These, these are all estimates, okay? If, if Daniel was written anywhere near when we know Daniel was written, and we have great evidence of when Daniel was written, nothing murky about it. We can also just trust the word of God, which is proven again and again and again. However, if Daniel's vision was written anywhere near 551 BC, it is overwhelming how much truth the Bible predicts. The Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus conquering Media, which is prophesied in this scripture, begins about 550 BC. They, the Medo-Persian Empire, rules the world for, you know, 150 to 200 years, somewhere in there. Then, uh, and, and the Medo-Persian Empire, I have a picture of a ram here. I would read Daniel chapter 8 really quick. Pause this and read it. Um, they are depicted in this chapter as a ram. Then there's a goat, which is the kingdom of Greece, and Alexander the Great is the horn of that goat. Alexander the Great comes along in about 334 BC, so hundreds of years later. And finally, after you know the Greeks, the Greeks conquer the world. Obviously, Alexander in just 13 years he conquers the known world. He conquers Persia in 334 BC. Well, 150, 160, 170 years after him. Antiochus Epiphanes captures Jerusalem, and that is prophesied in this chapter as well. This is a coin of Antiochus Epiphanes. That word Epiphanes means illustrious one or God manifest. He is a perfect example of a type or foreshadowing of an Antichrist. He called himself God and did many things. And so all of these things are amazing prophecies if we understand when the book of Daniel is written and we trust the scripture. And Daniel predicts the future uh, like no other book in the Bible. And I believe the reason there's a war against the date of when Daniel is written is because Daniel predicts the future 
in a way where the events he predicts have already happened in history, right? About the Middle Persian, Alexander, Antiochus, all Rome, all these events. And, and it gives us evidence right now that the Word of God is truly the Word of God. Whereas Revelation really looks more towards the future. So there's, there's a little bit less of a war there. And I want you to see this. This is so evil. If you were to Google right now, and many children and many youth, they just trust whatever Google says. I want you to understand the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, the Bible says. We can't trust things just because we Google them. If you Google, when was the book of Daniel written? It's a complete lie. It says about 164 BC. There is absolutely no evidence. There's a couple worldly, secular, silly arguments. It was never expect, uh, accepted by the Jews. It's never been accepted by the Christians. Daniel himself claimed to be preaching in Babylon. However, there's even a secular argument that, that we can you know, fight against this with, uh, which I like to use. But it blew my mind that, that when you Google it, and I scrolled down to, you can Google this yourself, when was the book of Daniel written? When you Google it, it doesn't even bring up the argument. It just it just announces it like a statement. It is so silly. Uh, and, and it's pretty much most of the links that will pop up. Now, that being said, if you go to my channel, channel uh, Foolish Ministries, go to the main channel, I've actually made a video on Daniel chapter 9. It's actually one of my, uh, you know, it, it's the video that's gotten the most views, essentially. And, and I, I wrote in that that it's absolute proof Jesus is God. So I looked at Daniel chapter 9, not the whole chapter like we're going to do in this series, but specific prophecies about Christ. I would highly recommend you watch that video. But the reason we know Daniel is an inspired book of God, regardless of when they say it was written, is it predicted the birth of Christ in 70 AD. I'm sorry, the birth of Christ and the death of Christ, uh, specifically the death of Christ. And it predicted the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD. And so if we can prove that it predicted something, even if it was written in 164 BC, it is common sense that we should just believe the Bible, that, that all of it is inspired. It's not that God inspired a prophecy and then the rest of the book of Daniel could be corrupted. Not that there's any evidence to even give credence to this 164 BC nonsense, but even if you were, you could still argue if it was written in 164 BC, it radically predicted the future in the destruction of the temple and the death of, of Christ. And so if it's predicting the future, even based on the lie of their date, we should just assume it's the word of God. And of course, it was written somewhere between 530 and, and 600 BC. Now, with that being said, that was a lot on verse 1. Let's jump to verse 2. So Daniel's having this vision, third year of the reign of Belshazzar. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. Remember that. Susa is a capital city. Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. So this location is amazing. You can Google this. The capital of Susa, literally hundreds of years later, Xerxes, one of the Persian emperors, uh, the, the Bible has a different name for him, uh, you know, literally took up residence there, right? And in the Bible, there's many times where Susa, Elam, and Medo-Persia are sort of spoken of all in one. You can look at that up in Bible Hub. The book of Esther, written by a different person, right? It says, in those days as King Ahuazeres, I can't pronounce that, that's just the term the Bible uses for King Xerxes. 
he sat in his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. And then down here, it talks about he's throwing a banquet for his Persian and Median princes. And so this prophecy is about the kings of the Medes and the kings of the Persians. And what's amazing is hundreds of years before this city was a capital or a main city that the, the Persian army and the Persian king Xerxes used, Daniel is having this vision there in the province of Elam, and he's beside the Ulai Canal, a man-made canal. And so What's amazing about that is I'm going to give, because this prophecy is complex, or at least complex to teach, I should say. We have to remember, the Holy Spirit's our teacher. So you could read this without me and come to a perfect understanding of it all through Christ, but it's my hope that he'll use me to explain it today. But I want to give away this prophecy, Daniel chapter 8, verse 20 and 21, before we jump into it. And I just want to sear it into your brain. So Daniel 8, 20, we're about to read of a vision of a two-horned ram and a goat. And this vision is just explained. It's very straightforward. The two-horned ram is the king of Media and Persia, and the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. So it's the kings, plural, of Media and Persia. So the ram is the Medo Persian Empire. The goat is Greece. Just remember that. Double G. The goat is Greece. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, not, not a king, the kingdom of Greece. He has a horn we're going to see later, which is Alexander the Great, the first king that united that empire. Now, that being said, let's move on to the actual vision. Just remember, goat is Greece, ram, meadow, Persia. So Daniel lifts his eyes. He looks and he beholds a ram, meadow, Persia. He, he beholds meadow, Persia, and it has two horns. We have to remember the meadow, Persian empire, the silver, the arms of, of silver on Daniel chapter two statue, right? The two arms. It has two horns standing in front of the canal. The two horns are the kings of the Medes uh, and, and Persians. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Here is our first specific prophecy, and it is mind-blowing. The two horns, the Medes and the Persians, are long. They're powerful kingdoms within, or powerful, you know, governments within this one kingdom. One is longer than the other, and the longer one comes up last. This is amazing. Remember the timeline. You have the Median Empire rising first, gaining power. It isn't until hundreds of years later, Cyrus the Great, Isaiah prophesied about him. Cyrus the Great comes over, conquers Medo-Persia, and unites. It becomes the Medo-Persian Empire. He conquers the Medes, and the Persian Empire becomes the Medo-Persian Empire. So the second hornet said came, the, the most powerful horn came up later. Look at this. It's incredible. The history lines up perfectly. The two horns are long, but one was longer. One is more powerful than the other. The longer one, the more powerful one comes up last. So Median, Media starts, the Median Empire starts first, but it's not as powerful as this empire. They come up, they spring up later. They are more powerful and they conquer this empire. It's incredible. Daniel 8 goes on to say, I saw Meadow Persia. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. Remember that. It doesn't come, it doesn't butt eastward because Persia came from the east. 
I saw Meadow Persia budding westward, northward, and southward. Remember the bear was raised up on one side? Now this explains it. The ram is the bear. The ram has one larger horn, Persia. The bear is lifted up on one side in Daniel chapter 7. The three ribs could be three nations, or it could be three directions that he is devouring. And in this case, the, the Meadow Persia is destroying to the west, the north, and the south. <coughs> Excuse me. Now it says, no other beasts, no other nations, no governments could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. God is in control of everything, and he's using wicked kings who magnify themselves, and they have no idea that he's prophesied this before it ever happened. It's incredible. Now, this kind of blows my mind as well. Isaiah chapter 45, there's really not much fighting. Everyone kind of knows Isaiah was written 700 BC. The reason there's not as much fighting over it is it's not, Daniel is all prophecy. Isaiah has some, uh, you know, other things in it. It's, It's a 66-chapter book. It's not quite as crystal clear, although it is crystal clear, but it's just a different, there's a a different scheme to it, whereas Daniel is is just prophecy, essentially. Uh, You know, it's, it's way more clear. And so, There's less fighting, but what blows my mind is Isaiah is written during this time, during about 700 BC, before all of this, before Cyrus conquers Medo-Persia. And look at this prophecy. The timeline is amazing. Isaiah chapter 45, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. He's saying, I've anointed Cyrus for something. Even though Cyrus is a wicked king, I have set him apart for something. I've taken by the right hand to subdue nations. Cyrus will subdue nations before him, loose the loins of kings. He will conquer kings. He will open the doors before him and his gates will not be shut. He'll be conqueror. Isaiah chapter 46 talks about you know, the Medo-Persian Empire through Cyrus conquering Babylon. And look what God says to, to vindicate his sovereignty. He says, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember this, sinners, is what it's saying. Remember the former things long past. That's what I'm trying to do with this teaching ministry. Remembering what God has done. For I am God and there is no other I am God, there is no one like me. Why is there no one like God? He's talking about Cyrus. Check this out. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is sovereign. He sits in the heavens. He does what he wants with a righteous nation or a wicked nation, and we have no right to question him. Then he says, talking about Cyrus, calling a bird of prey from the east, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. That's Cyrus. He came from the east. He conquered the Medes, right? Uh, And conquered many nations, uniting the Medo-Persian Empire, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. In Isaiah 45, he literally names Cyrus before he's born, and he talks about that. He says, I've named you 
though you don't know me. And so I find this kind of funny. When you Google when the book of Isaiah is written, it's pretty straightforward. It doesn't argue. They don't use too many arguments. There's not as big of a war around it because Isaiah has 66 chapters. It has many different prophecies. But Daniel, the prophecies are just worded in a different way. It is so specific that it just removes all sense. You know, people want to have plausible deniability, right? They want to, non-believers, they want to look at the Bible and say, it's murky. We can't understand it. We can't trust it. It's all scoffing. But Daniel just removes that veil of security that there, and it's a, it's a bad veil. It's not going to work on Judgment Day, but they're just trying to hide under a blanket of, oh, the Bible's a mysterious book. Daniel just just wrecks that because the history is so clear. Look at in purple here, you have this where the Persian Empire started. And it said, I saw the ram, I saw Meadow Persia budding westward, northward, and southward. Pause the video and look at this. It's so clear. Just like the three ribs, it said, arise, devour much flesh. Look at all these kingdoms that Cyrus conquered. Look at all these kings he, he loosed the loins of, right? Like the, the, the Bible is predicting this 700 years before it happened and then hundreds of years before it happened. It's incredible. He goes to the west, he goes to the north, and he goes to the south. And that is the, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is in Daniel 2, the, the, right after the head of gold, Babylon, uh, the Medes, you know, Darius the Mede took over Babylon. We, we saw that in Daniel chapter 5. This is the silver, the chest and arms of silver, or this is the bear that's raised up on one side. And so, it, you know, Daniel 7, 5, there's another beast resembling a bear. It's raised up on one side, just like the ram with the one horn that's lifted up. Now we get another piece of the prophecy. The lifted up horn came after Media, and it conquered Media. It came up later and was stronger. And, and that's just so historically proven. Three ribs were in its mouth, westward, northward, southward, nations being devoured. And so, so, so straightforward. Let's move on now to Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. While I was observing, he's observing Meadow Persia, behold, a male goat, the kingdom of Greece, was coming from the West. That's where Alexander the Great came from. Like, nobody argues that. Like, secular historians aren't arguing about this. This is fact. A male goat, the kingdom of Greece, was coming from the West over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's saying it's so swift. Alexander the Great conquered Medo-Persia in three years, and they were the world rulers, conquered the known earth in 13 years. It was the fastest ever done. He was the, you know, seen as the potentially the most, you know, amazing military conqueror in all of history. Smart, wise, strong, a warrior. Uh, I think there's myths of him that he was like 15 feet tall. He was this savage, brutal, but brilliant uh, conqueror. And so he comes over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. That horn you're going to see very clearly is Alexander the Great, the first king. The vision interprets the vision in, in a few verses. We can stay in the Bible and see that. However, I want to I backtrack to Daniel chapter 7 really quick. The male goat, Greece, is coming from the west without touching the ground. Well, Greece is the leopard. And look, it says in, in Daniel chapter 7, it's the third beast after Medo-Persia. You have Babylon, Medo-Persia, now Greece. And it has four wings. So it goes fast. And in Daniel 8, it doesn't touch the ground. It comes over the surface of the whole earth. It doesn't touch the ground. It flies through conquering 
because it is that leopard with the wings, right? It just seems like the tie-ins are so clear here uh, that these beasts are one and the same. Now, Daniel chapter 8, verse 21 says, The goat represents the kingdom of Greece. The large horn between his eyes is the first king. Alexander the Great was kind of like elected by his governors to be the leader. He became the first king of this kingdom of Greece. And, and this is what's really incredible. Daniel chapter 8, verse 5 says, you know, there's this male goat, this kingdom of Greece. It has a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Well, Daniel chapter 11 talks about this a little more about Persia and Greece. It says, I'm going to, you know, there's an angel revealing more and more of these prophecies. We're, we're not in Daniel chapter 11 today. So I'm just bringing this up for a second. He says, behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. A fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. I believe that is Xerxes, if you've ever watched the, the movie 300, right? And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he's going to arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And so Persia, Medo-Persian Empire, came against Greece. They conquered some of their like vassal and city-states, right? Then a mighty king will arise, that is Alexander the Great, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. And it even goes on to say, we're going to talk about this in a second, as soon as he, as soon as Alexander the Great has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up. Well, why? Alexander the Great historically died at 33, pretty much right after conquering the world. As soon as he arose, as soon as he conquered Medo-Persia, this great king doing as he pleases, he grew very arrogant. He even wanted to be worshipped as a god. He lived a very licentious and lustful and idolatrous life. And then he died. But this prophecy is incredible. Alexander the Great came from the West. See these little arrows? It shows he came from the West. This is how he conquered Persia. I mean, it's just the Bible is so clear. The truth is jaw dropping, jaw dropping. Excuse me. It's almost scary. And so Daniel 8 goes on to say, he, Alexander the Great, came up to the ram, Meadow Persia, that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Beloved, this is meant to be a simple reading and explanation. I am not a, a history major. I, I'm not going to go all through the war of Alexander the Great. You need to understand this is ridiculous. It, just go watch an Alexander the Great documentary on YouTube. I've read a lot about Alexander the Great. I would recommend you just watch a 45-minute documentary on Alexander the Great on YouTube, and it will just help sort of uh, you know open up this. Alexander the Great was always outnumbered. It, it's he probably had somewhere between thirty-two and forty thousand soldiers, and he went up against armies of a hundred thousand. Some people say he was outnumbered five to one in some battles, but he was a man of mighty wrath. I mean, he was a vicious, brutal king. He destroyed entire cities just because they wouldn't give him supplies sometimes. And so it says, I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him. And there's stories I've read of that, how Alexander the Great had an immense rage against the Medo-Persian Empire. He struck the ram, Medo-Persia, and shattered his two horns. That's historically true. Uh, you know, Persia and the Median Empire, gone. He shattered them. The ram had no strength to withstand him. True. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. True. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. This is 100% historically verified. Watch details. Like go to YouTube and just Google or just search or Google Alexander the Great documentary of how he conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. You will see 
his victories are ridiculous. And, and the reason they are ridiculous is because this is God's plan. God wrote this plan hundreds of years before it happened, right? He chose Cyrus to conquer nations, and then Cyrus's kingdom ruled for a couple hundred years. Then he chose Alexander the Great, and he ruled for a couple hundred of years, and God was sovereign over all of it. This reminds me, Alexander the Great being so outnumbered, if you will just research it, it will blow your mind, and his conquest and how fast he just conquered the known world, 13 years, and then he died at 33. It's incredible. In Judges, uh, way back in the Old Testament, we learn of the Hebrews, the Israelites, conquering Midian. And the Lord whittles down their army to, I think, just about 300 people from thousands. He doesn't want a lot of people fighting against them. And here's why. He said, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. Because if I do that, Israel will become boastful and arrogant, saying, my own power delivered me. My own power conquered Midian. Beloved, this is for us to study in history. Alexander the Great only conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, which probably had millions of troops, with, with a, a starting army of like 30,000 guys. The only reason he did that was because it was God's plan. The same reason Gideon conquered the army of Midian with 300 people. It is God's plan. Now, Gideon was a righteous man and Alexander was a wicked man, but that doesn't change the fact that this was God's plan and we see him working in a very similar way, totally outnumbered. Then it says this is more specific prophecies that shows us this is clearly Alexander the Great. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, very antichrist, magnifying himself. It was written of Alexander, I mean, he wanted to be worshipped like a god. But as soon as he was mighty, incredible, the large horn was broken. And that's really what happened. He conquered the world, and then he died at 33. And beloved, let me preach to you here for a minute. It's just terrifying, the sovereignty of God. This man, Alexander the Great, lived a very disciplined, very hard life. I'm sure he had dreams and hopes and plans of ambitions of relaxing after all this conquering. He finally conquers the world. And, and he's brutally wicked. He, he kills millions. He wants to be worshipped as a god. He, he died, you know, it's written sort of, of of sickness, and he was drinking a ton, just kind of like a licentious living. It's not 100% clear. It, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is as soon as he conquered the world and he was done being used by God, he was killed. And he's in hell right now. And he's a vessel of wrath in hell. He's a a proud, awesome warrior. If he were standing in the room right now, I'd be terrified of him. But before God, he is cowering like a baby, and he has been used by him, and he refused to repent. He refused to humble himself. As soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. The best of man, the Bible says, is just dust. And in its place, in Alexander the Great's place, in his kingdom's place, there came up four conspicuous horns. These are the four generals of Alexander toward the four winds of heaven. Daniel 8, uh, verse 22, it, it explains this even more. It says, The broken horn, Alexander the Great, and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Very important. What does not with his power mean? The Bible interprets the Bible. So Alexander the Great dies. His kingdom is going to be divided out towards the four directions of the compass, four winds of heaven, not with his power. Scripture interprets scripture. Remember Daniel 11? A mighty king will arise. He will rule with great authority, do as he pleases after Persia comes against Greece. That's Alexander the Great. And, and then it goes on to say, as soon as he has arisen, just like in Daniel 8, same guy, 
Soon as he had arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. His sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others, not according to his power, Daniel 8, not according to his descendants. When Alexander the Great died, his son was one years old. And after 20 or 30 years, so I've heard, of infighting, his kingdom was divided into these four sort of realms or kingdoms, the kingdom of Ptolemy, the kingdom of Cassander, Lysimachus, and Seleucus. Now, Seleucus, the king of the north, you need to you need to keep this in your mind. The king of the north is the one we really want to remember today. This is where Antiochus Epiphanes come from. This is where the foreshadowing of the Antichrist comes from. Um, and so now it begins to get... A, so that's all, in my opinion, if we study scripture. It, it's hard to understand if we just read Daniel 8 in five minutes, but if we study it... Everything so far is very straightforward. It is an amazing proof of the truth and reality of the Word of God. This all really happened in history. Now it gets a little complex because we have a near-term fulfillment and potentially a far-term fulfillment. And so we want to approach it with humility. We want to understand that nothing I say is inspired except when I'm literally quoting Scripture. And that's why I quote Scripture a lot, so that even if I get every interpretation wrong for my entire ministry, a large portion of it would have been just quoting Scripture. <laughs> and so, but with that being said, remember, nothing I say is inspired. This is a very conservative view of these Scriptures. So here we go into the more uh, complex matters of this prophecy. Out of one of them, out of one of the four kingdoms I just showed you on the map after Alexander the Great's death, came forth a rather small horn, just like the Antichrist, Daniel chapter 7. However, it's coming out of Greece. It's not coming out of Rome. And there's a couple different views to that. I won't go too deep in it today. This is coming out of the Grecian Empire. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great, very Antichrist, right? It grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, uh, toward the east and toward the beautiful land that is Israel. Okay, I believe this in the near term clearest fulfillment is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to learn about him today. He was the Hitler of the Old Testament. He was the Antichrist of the Old Testament. He is a wicked man. And if you study what he did in history from religious, the Jews or secular historians, they all agree he was manifestedly evil. He's a perfect picture if we want to understand how evil and maniacal the devil is. The things he did, they're they're it's tough for me to even talk about them. They're so sad. Whenever I hear about them, I think, what if a persecution comes to the church and I have to witness evil men do this to my, my brothers and sisters in Christ? It, it, it breaks my heart and it gets me scared. I mean, it's terrifying the things he's done. Daniel 8 talks about him in the latter period of their rule, these four kingdoms, the latter period of their rule, Antiochus came in about one, you know, really rose to power like 175 to 164 BC, right? Hundreds of years after Alexander the Great died, or a little over 100 years after Alexander the Great died. And what's amazing is in the latter period of their rule, Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, about 20 or 30 years later, Rome came in and, and conquered Greece, right? And so it's pretty, or conquered these kingdoms. So in the latter period of their rule, 
when the transgressors have run their course. You know, and the Bible makes this clear. The Amorites were judged in the Old Testament, but 430 years prior, God said to Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete yet. And for 400 years, they hardened themselves and continued in their sin. And then they were judged by Israel. Israel, you know, killed them and conquered their nation. And that was a judgment from God. God was patient and he allowed them time, but they just kept hardening themselves. And God knew that. He is sovereign. Well, in the latter period of these four kingdoms, when the transgressors have run their course, when the sin gets as, as bad as, it's, as God's going to allow it to get, a king will arise, insolent, arrogant, deceitful, skilled in intrigue. He, he's wise. He can fix, very antichrist. He can fix all the world's problems. He's deceitful. He's kind of like a sorcerer. Daniel 11 talks about this man. I believe it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, which is really a perfect foreshadowing and possibly the clearest foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. It says, in his place, a despicable person will arise, a wicked person, a vile person. It's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. Antiochus Epiphanes seized the throne. He, he wasn't in the kingly line. I believe his brother was held captive in Rome. I'm not a history major. I just know he didn't have any right to the king. He seized it through, it says, flattery. He came in a time of peace, just like the Antichrist will. They'll say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. He will seize the kingdom by intrigue, by flattery. Very Antichrist. The Antichrist is one day given authority by the ten rulers of the world. He's given the keys to the kingdoms of the earth. He, he seizes by flattery, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Seleucus, the king of the north, Antiochus comes and he, he, he's, you know, in control of this kingdom. They go to the north, uh, you know, conquering up here. They go to the south. They have many wars with the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, in the south and towards the beautiful land. They, they go towards Israel. So let's see what Daniel says. And so you have to understand, I believe Daniel chapter 8 is showing us what Antiochus Epiphanes does. And then there's just too many similarities between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. We have to ask ourselves, during the tribulation, is the Antichrist going to do specific things Antiochus did? And in fact, that's the other interpretation. Some people say Antiochus Epiphanes is not only a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, that the Antichrist must even come out of the Seleucid Empire, that it might actually be from the Greek Empire, not the Roman Empire. And there's all these different opinions on it that I don't want to delve too deep into. I, I do believe Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, just how much the Antichrist will have in common with him on a specific area, I don't know. I think it will be revealed in the time. So it says, this horn grew up to the host of heaven. What does that mean? The host, the armies, the masses of heaven. And it caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Now, once again, the Bible predicts the Bible. So when it says it grew up to the host of heaven, the masses of heaven, and it caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, it trampled them down. Remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There is spiritual warfare taking place in the universe. And then on the earth, through flesh and blood, are our you know, brothers and sisters in the world, right? That, that is happening as well. So when it says it grew up to the host of heaven, it became arrogant and blasphemous against Yahweh and against his children and, and, and the, the true Jewish redeemed saints and that whole system God had set up in the temple. Now, it says it caused 
some of the hosts and the stars to fall to the earth. What what is that? What are the hosts and what are these stars that are falling to the earth? And he's trampling them down. It's obviously talking about the little horn. It's talking about Antiochus. And this is all historically confirmed. He brutally conquered Jerusalem. He was vicious towards them. But what are these stars? Well, I think Daniel 12 reveals this to us. Daniel 12 says, those who have insight, wisdom, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, like the stars, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. You see, what Antiochus did is, is, so the saints are the stars in a sense, and the angels in a sense are sometimes called stars, and and the Bible says we're going to be like the angels, right? Jesus said in, in the new heaven, new earth, or in the, the age to come, you're going to be like the angels, right? And so like the stars forever and ever, it's talking about those who have wisdom. Human beings are like the stars forever and ever. And what's amazing is in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus said, you know, I'm the root, I'm the branch and the descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. You see, we as saints, we're going to be like Jesus, not in perfection, uh, but one day when we're glorified, we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We're going to be like him a little bit, right? He's the bright morning star. We're like little baby stars, right? And so Daniel 12 said, those who are wise will shine like the stars forever and ever, just like Jesus shines as the bright morning star, as God in human flesh, right? Uh, Daniel 8 says, some of the stars, I believe that's saying some of the stars fell to the earth and he trampled them down. You see, Antiochus was very antichrist. He created laws and systems that outed people who were faithful to the, to, to the Old Testament, faithful to the law. He burned the law. He, he destroyed the scriptures. Anyone who circumcised their kids or did anything God commanded, he would, he would kill them. And so he trampled them down, those true saints. Daniel 11 goes on to say, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. And so there's there's two different ways scholars seem to look at this. Number one, the commander of the host is Yahweh, Jesus Christ, right? The Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Prince of Princes, it says later on in Daniel. You're going to see that in a second. And maybe that's the far fulfillment. Antichrist magnifies himself to be equal with Jesus. Uh, Antiochus did call himself God manifest. He is very antichrist, but he also set up an altar to Zeus. He didn't set up a, an image of himself. He set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So it could also mean in a near-term fulfillment, the commander of the host, Antiochus Epiphanes killed the high priest. You see, Antiochus Epiphanes came in in 171 BC, you know, the book of Maccabees, it's not inspired, it's apocryphal, but it, it talks about this. He, he killed the Jewish high priest, and in his place, he basically just put someone faithful to him, right? It says he removed the regular sacrifice, which he did. He stopped them sacrificing the lambs, which are a type of Jesus, right? from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. You know, the, the, the sanctuary and the temple at the time of the persecution of Antiochus was brutal. We're going to talk about it in a second. For right now, just trust me, it was disgustingly brutal. Uh, the sanctuary, the temple was just, just corrupted. And it says, on account of transgression, the host will be given over. Because of the sin of Israel, because they had turned away, right? They were living in, in that apostasy on account of transgression, or this could mean on account of how wicked Antiochus was, 
the host will be given over to the horn. You know, the saints were given into the hand of Antiochus Epiphanes, and one day the saints will be given into the hand of the Antichrist for a time, times and half a time. Along with the regular sacrifice, Antiochus stopped the regular sacrifice. And it says he will fling truth to the ground. He destroyed scripture. He destroyed the law. He burnt it. He cut it up. He stopped circumcision. He sacrificed a pig on God's altar. And he I get scared saying this stuff, literally. He sacrificed a pig on God's altar. And, and the reason I get scared saying of it is my mind immediately imagines Antiochus in hell right now. And believe me, I have pity for him. I mean, he is a wicked man. He deserves to be in hell. But so do I, beloved, and, and so do you. And Christ had mercy on us. That's, that's the only reason we're studying the book of Daniel right now is because we love the Lord and his word. This man flings truth to the ground, just like the Antichrist. He is the lawless one. He changes the law. He tries to change the truth. And he performs its will, his will, and he prospers. I want to talk about Antiochus killing the high priest. You see, I believe that's like the near-term fulfillment, right? Antiochus kills the high priest, and that's very important because that happened. Uh, There's historical evidence that happened in 171 BC. The timing of that is very important. uh, You know, the high priest was a type of Christ. In Zechariah 3, it says, Listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, you are a symbol, you are a sign. Behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. That is Jesus. That's a prophecy of him before he was born. Isaiah 11 says a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. King David was the son of Jesse, a branch from his roots, the greater David from the line of David and Jesse. Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 53. He is the branch of Zechariah 3 and Isaiah 11. He's the root and the offspring of the line of David. And Jesus is a high priest. Now, Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He's also fully man. He's a, he, he's a prophet, a king, but he's also a priest. Hebrews 6 says Jesus has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we're not talking about today. The bottom line I'm trying to explain is, in the near term, when it says, you know, he causes the stars to fall down, he kills all the saints, he magnifies himself to be equal with the commander of the host, he killed the high priest who's a type of the coming Messiah. He removes the regular sacrifices, the lambs, which are a, a type of the Messiah. So he, I believe this scripture is talking about him. I have to lean that way. But I think it's also pointing us towards the, the coming Antichrist that, that you know, desecrates the temple and does all these idolatrous actions once again. Okay? So now I just want to explain, once again, I'm not a history major. I want to explain what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Okay, and this is really approved by historical, secular, you know, historians and religious historians. It's pretty straightforward. Antiochus Epiphanes killed tens of thousands of Jews mercilessly. He wanted to sort of Hellenize and get rid of the religion of Jerusalem. Obviously, that's what the Antichrist wants to do. He wants to get rid of the true religion that worships God through Christ. And since Christ hadn't come, they were looking at the types and the figures of the lambs being sacrificed and the high priest, right? He killed the high priest Onias III in 171 BC. Very important. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. He set up an altar to Zeus and he sacrificed a pig on the temple altar. It kind of reminds me of how the Antichrist in Revelation 13 and 17, there's an image of the beast, an image of the Antichrist set up in the temple. Second Thessalonians 2 talks about the Antichrist going into the temple and proclaiming he's God. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, his name means God manifest, 
but he set up an altar to another God. And I think that's important to know. He destroyed scripture, banned circumcision, and this is where I'm going to talk about the evil of him, and it just breaks my heart. He slaughtered children. Honestly, repeating what he did reminds me of like when you have to curse in front of your grandparents, like you have to, like you're explaining a story and for some reason, and I'm not recommending you do that. I I feel like I'm about to curse in front of my grandma. Like that's what I feel like. He's, I don't even like saying this stuff. He killed babies who were circumcised. He then hung them with rope around their mother's necks and made the mothers walk around all day. He burn children alive right in front of their mothers. He was probably laughing and cackling as he did this. Uh, Beloved, this is just a man who's not even going to be close to how evil the Antichrist is, and that's what he did. And the Antichrist isn't even as evil as the devil is. And they're all wicked beyond our imagination. But, beloved, can you imagine how evil the devil is to inspire people to do this? Can you imagine how evil we are in our flesh to, to, if it were apart from Christ and are apart from the restraining of the Holy Spirit? Mankind has madness and murder in our hearts, and, and it's just terrible what he did. It, it was vile. He was a wicked one. And, and the one coming, the profane wicked prince of Israel, the Antichrist of the New Testament, He will do that, and he will be wicked and maniacal on a worldwide scale. He will devour and crush the entire world. Now, Daniel 8 goes on to say, so that's that's the vision, very important. Then I heard a holy one speaking, most likely an angel, and another holy one said to the particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? while the transgression causes horror. Beloved, you know, we're told in the New Testament the angels long to look into the gospel, that the gospel that Christ died for the ungodly, that God, who should destroy the wicked justly, would send his son to die for them, that God in human flesh would die for them. The angels long to look into that, meaning they can't even understand it. It is beyond the depths of their reality, and they are angels with perfect minds. These angels are horrified at what is happening. They understand the the magnificent glory of Yahweh like we can't. And these angels are horrified at what's being done. And they're saying, how long will this take place, this transgression that causes horror, this vision that the regular sacrifice has stopped, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled, the holy place, the temple, and the host to be trampled? And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Beloved, if you like to study history, this is just Hanukkah. Every year the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. It's just when they repelled the Syrians, Antiochus forces, uh, from this place. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Okay, I I wrote out a statement because I didn't want to get this wrong. Let me read it. Uh, The source is 1st and 2nd Maccabees, several online articles. They are apocryphal, not inspired. This period of time, 2,300 evenings and mornings, is just over six years. History is not inspired, different opinions, right? Nor crystal clear on the exact dates of the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus. People have different opinions. However, the most interesting detail I can find is that from 171 BC, the killing of the high priest Onias, right, the type of Christ, To the first Hanukkah, uh, the the success of the Jewish people, they lead a revolt under Judah Maccabee to expel the Syrian forces and rededicate the temple, was the 25th day of Kislev, which is November, December, 
of 165 BC. It appears to be just over or roughly or about six years. Beloved, it's incredible. The secret things belong to God. I don't want to go too deep into every single date. That's not the the purpose of this channel. I believe that's important. Uh, many scholars do that in books, and better preachers than I, they they you, you could listen to fifteen sermons on Daniel chapter eight. This is to give you a basic understanding. It, it is incredible. The vision is of twenty three hundred evenings and mornings. Then the holy place was restored. And look at a witness of God's truth. Every year the Jews celebrate Hanukkah today. To, to remember their victory here. And when they restored the temple, and a miracle actually happened in that story where they were able to restore the temple. And I just find that incredible because we know God leaves a witness about himself. And we know the Jews still largely reject Christ. And every year when they celebrate Hanukkah, they're celebrating the, the truth of this word. And if they would just turn to this word, they would see Daniel 7 talks about the coming Messiah. So does Daniel chapter 9. You know, there's not much about Jesus Christ in Daniel chapter 8, and that actually grieves me. I, I just, I, I can't go, you know, I, I love scripture and I don't want to blaspheme God's word or despise any part of God's word, but it's, there's not too much about Christ in Daniel chapter 8. You could draw inferences and realities and point to Christ. Uh, what I'm saying is I'm talking specific scripture. There's one coming up in a second. However, this chapter really begins to reveal the Antichrist. So maybe in the wisdom of God, you see why, it, you know, it's, it's revealing the Antichrist, a, a little bit more about him, about his character and about his nature. And, uh, you know, I just find it amazing. God leaves himself with a witness. Every year they celebrate this. And if they would turn to this book, they would see that the Messiah came and was killed, just like prophesied, but he is coming back. So Daniel 8 goes on to say, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So very important. First of all, maybe this is Jesus. I don't want to go outside of scripture, but it's the voice of a man and he is commanding angels. The only man I know who can command angels is is Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the clearest prophecy or foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, so unfortunately, I can't delve too deep into it. But a man is commanding the angels here before Christ is born. Perhaps this is Jesus' uh, pre-incarnate appearance. However, he called out to Gabriel. And I found this really interesting. I have not studied angels too, too much other than the scriptures surrounding them. But there's only four angels named in the Bible. There's Gabriel, which has always seemed to be a messenger, and the archangel Michael, who seems to be a warrior. Then there is Lucifer, right, the, fall, the devil, the fallen angel, and there is Abaddon, the destroyer. So two holy angels and two wicked angels are described in the Bible, and I found that interesting. But Gabriel, uh, it, it's written, it says, give this man an understanding of the vision. So the angel begins to interpret the vision. Um, so he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened, as I think we all would be. I fell on my face. And that's, beloved, when we see angels, we're terrified. Imagine if we saw God. I mean, imagine Alexander the Great and Antiochus right now, underneath God's wrath. Just the terror. I frightened and I fell on my face, but he said to me, Son of man, understand the vision pertains to the time of the end. All right, beloved, this is where we have to approach this with humility and understanding that the secret things belong to God. We don't know exactly every little detail, but I believe the Lord has revealed quite a bit. 
it says the vision pertains to the time of the end. Some people look at this as only talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, and therefore the time of the end is the time of the end of Antiochus Epiphanes, Hanukkah, right? The festival of lights. Jesus went to the festival of lights, Hanukkah. That's when they relit the menorah, the candle in the temple. They they conquered, you know, Antiochus. They, they repelled Antiochus and they got their temple back and it was restored, just like this prophecy. When I read the time of the end, I believe this is looking forward towards the future. I believe there's a far-term fulfillment in the person of the Antichrist. And how much he resembles Antiochus, we will only know when he comes one day. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. So he, he makes him stand upright and he says, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation? When I read that, the final period of God's wrath, and I believe there's other verses that illuminate this that I won't bring up, but I believe this is talking about the tribulation. You see, the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to, it says it once again, the appointed time of the end. Now, a historical person will say that's the appointed time of the end of these kingdoms, and, and a futurist person might say, this. no, this is the end of the world. This is the tribulation. I believe they could both be right. It is talking about the, this current end with Antiochus killing the high priest and setting up the altar of Zeus and all that. And then the festival of lights and Hanukkah could also be talking about the far end with the Antichrist, the little horn from, from Daniel chapter 7, persecuting the saints and wanting to be worshipped as God, right? And so I believe it could be talking about both. It pertains to the appointed time of the end. Then he explains the vision. We've already gone over this. The ram which you saw is, uh, represents the kings of Media and Persia with two horns. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. Very straightforward. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power, not from his descendants. In the latter period of their rule, they all ruled for you know a little over 100 years. Uh, it says when the transgressors have run their course, uh, when they're as wicked as they could be, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. I believe it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But now as the visions explained, there's just too many similarities between him and the Antichrist. Let me explain. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Okay, just like the Antichrist is not from his own power. You're going to see that. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And two points, he does, Antiochus does destroy to an extraordinary degree. He is vicious and brutal. However, on the heels of Alexander the Great that just conquered the known world, I wouldn't say he destroyed to an extraordinary degree, whereas the Antichrist, he will in a way we could never imagine, trample the entire world, not just trampling Jerusalem. So I believe it could be talking about both here. It says he destroys mighty men, which is true of his campaigns, but also the holy people, just like Antiochus did and just like the Antichrist will do. Revelation chapter 13 is obviously talking about the Antichrist because it's written, uh, you know, hundreds of years after Antiochus dies. It says the beast, the Antichrist, is like a leopard, very important, the chief characteristics of this final beast is like a leopard, the kingdom of Greece. And I, I think that's very important. I, I believe like Daniel chapter 7, the final beast, it, it, it's an unimaginable beast. It doesn't look like anything specifically. Uh, you know, it's not like a bear, like a lion. It's all of them amalgamated into one massive empire. 
But its chief characteristics, I believe, will be Rome and Greece. It's like a leopard, right? And in Daniel 7, it says it has teeth of iron, Rome, and nails of bronze, Greece. And in Revelation 13, it says this beast is like a leopard. Its chief characteristics are, are, are Greek in a sense. And Greece just became a nation again, you know, like 100 years ago. So it's pretty, pretty amazing the times that we live in right now. It says the dragon gave him his power, just like Daniel 8 says it's not from his own power. The dragon gives the Antichrist his power, his throne, and great authority. Well, just like Daniel chapter 8, he will destroy mighty men and holy people. He will prosper to an extraordinary degree. He'll perform his will. His power will be mighty, not by his own power. Antiochus was satanically inspired, just like all wicked kings are. Daniel eleven thirty six. In fact, Daniel eleven talks about Antiochus a lot, just like Daniel eight. But then it also starts to talk about the Antichrist towards the end. In Daniel eleven thirty six, it talks about the attitude and ministry of the Antichrist. It says the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, speak monstrous things, blasphemies against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. And so, you know, Daniel 11, I believe this is talking about the Antichrist. You'll see from 2 Thessalonians 2 in a second, because in Daniel 8.25, it says, Through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, just like Antiochus did, just like Antichrist will do. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose... Okay, so earlier... It said the commander of the host, which I believe is Yahweh, Jesus, right? But it could mean in, in Antiochus's time, it could be when he slaughtered the high priest Onias III, right? Who was a type of Christ. But here it gives him a different name. He will oppose the prince of princes. This is Jesus. So near-term fulfillment, maybe it's the high priest. Far-term, maybe it's Jesus. And I'm saying maybe because this is just not inspired. Okay, if I had to be extremely conservative, I would probably say this is all talking about Antiochus. Uh, but if I can take any liberty and just really explain that my words are not inspired, yes, the similarities between Antiochus and the Antichrist abound so much and, and combine so much in Scripture. I do believe this is foreshadowing the Antichrist who will oppose the prince of princes. He will claim to be Jesus. He will claim to be God. And it says he will be broken without human agency. There's a prophecy. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, wasn't killed in battle. He died of a disease. And the Antichrist, it's written of him that he's killed by Jesus, right? And so 2 Thessalonians 2, New Testament, we're just talking about the Antichrist now. It says he opposes, he exalts, he magnifies himself above every so-called God or ob object of worship. Just like Daniel eleven thirty six, it says he does as he wants. He magnifies himself above every God. You see, I, I can't believe it's just talking about Antiochus because Antiochus set up an image of Zeus, whereas the Antichrist, he's going to set up the image of the beast. He's going to set up an image of himself. Second Thessalonians 2 says he exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He doesn't set up a, you know, an image to Allah or Buddha or, or Zeus or anything. He sets up an image of himself. He takes his seat in the temple of God, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, displaying himself as being God, and he's broken without hands as well. It says the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. And so, you know, if I had to be 100% safe, I would say this is all talking to Antiochus Epiphanes, 
But the foreshadowings are so clearly uh, pointing towards the Antichrist and all the foreshadowings of Jesus, the high priest, King David, Joseph, all the saints, all the prophets, they foreshadow Jesus. I believe the original ruler of Babel, uh, uh, the Tower of Babel, the king, his, his name is escaping me right now. Uh, in Genesis chapter, chapter 6, uh, in Genesis chapter 10, excuse me, is, you know, the leader of, of Babel, the, the mighty hunter before the Lord, is a type of Antichrist. I believe Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against the Lord and persecuted the children of God in Egypt, Pharaoh is a type of Antichrist. He was rebellious against the Lord. Uh, you know, foreshadowings that all sort of line up. But I believe Antiochus Epiphanes is really the, the clearest one of, of that coming lawless one whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And so I, I don't know it perfectly, and I know you, you know, we, we all we all know things in part, but I think it's talking about both Antiochus Epiphanes chiefly, and then foreshadowing the coming Antichrist. And just how similar the Antichrist is to Antiochus, I believe that will be revealed after the Antichrist comes. Daniel 8 finishes up with the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true. The 2300 evenings and mornings. Go read a history book about Hanukkah. Every year they celebrate it. It is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. It means keep it secret. It could also mean protect it. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision. And there was none to explain it, or no one else could explain it when he uh, understand it when he tried to explain it. And beloved, that's how I feel sometimes. This is complex stuff. It has been humbling uh, handling the word of God. And it is my dear prayer that I am a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, as you study these scriptures, go to your pastors, go to your elders, beg the Lord Jesus Christ first to give you wisdom and interpret his word. But remember, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I did not talk about Jesus at all or, or, or anywhere near as much as I want today. And I find that kind of amazing because this chapter really reveals Antiochus and the coming Antichrist. And so I, I find it interesting that there's almost nothing you know, where we can point towards Jesus, that they're just so different. The Antichrist is just the—he <clears throat> stands against Jesus and in the place of Jesus. He is a false Jesus. Um, Daniel was astounded at this vision. I believe we should be too. I mean, we have all the visions of God recorded for us in the word of God. Um, it blows my mind, the sovereignty and the truth in Daniel chapter eight, just talking about Medo-Persia and Greece and Alexander the Great. These are historical truths. Antiochus Epiphanes, these are historical truths. Mankind, we have no excuse. We are accountable to God. He has given us his truth in his word. We need to turn to him and be saved. I hope you enjoyed this uh, chapter. Next week, we'll move on to Daniel chapter 9.